Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. I'm joined today by Dr. Jennifer Yanow. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, if you're here with us today, is to learn about IMEs and second opinion consultations in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. Uh, this is part of our New Jersey webinar series. The third Monday of the month is always uh, New York, and the fourth Monday, which is today, is New Jersey webinar. Um, if you ever miss one of these webinars, they're always available on our website uh, with closed captioning, uh, and the address is on your screen right now. This is totally live, so if you're with us today, I hope you're here to ask us questions. I did send out an email uh, in advance of today's uh, webinar to all of the attorneys in my office, and they did come up with some questions for me to ask you. So uh, I'm encouraging everyone who's watching along on their computer screens, uh, probably at work, uh, to send us your questions, because that's what makes this fun. This is totally live, and uh, we're looking forward to answering some questions for you today. So I'm happy to introduce a guest. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Yanow. Uh, she's very familiar with pain. Uh, she is a marathon runner, an accomplished marathon runner, and I feel like that's mainly about managing pain, isn't it? I mean, Entirely. <laughs> all right. She's board certified in pain management and rehabilitation. Uh, she's been working in New Jersey uh, since 2009. Uh, she recently opened her own practice, so we're going to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, and she's testified as an expert on pain management and pain treatment. Uh, and she is uh, actively taking on cases in New Jersey with an active private practice. I want to put up on the screen contact information for Dr. Yanow. Her scheduling assistant is Suzanne. Suzanne's information's up there. Uh, you're currently, uh, your office is in Mountainside, but you're actually seeing patients through U.S. HealthWorks. Correct, yes. And I'll have a new office in Somerset in a few weeks. Great. But for and now it's U.S. HealthWorks and then uh, Mountainside. And it's fair to say, I mean, you're basically central to North Jersey. Central, That's the yeah. area that you're in a lot. Um, and those locations, Bridgewater, Jamesburg, Edison, Rahway, Elizabeth, uh, you're seeing patients there. They can be scheduled right now. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your practice because I think it's very interesting. <laughs> Workers' compensation, I feel like uh, over time, uh, I've been at this for 17 years. And when I first started when I was a baby attorney, TMJ was the big deal, and everybody cared about TMJ, TMJ. Um, then, uh, or right now, uh, it's probably opiates, and everybody's got their eye open on opiates and what it's doing to our system, sort of uh, a big challenge. And the new one I think that's going to be, we're going to be dealing with into the future is closed head injuries, right? Understanding it and how, how to deal with it. Uh, so today, talking about pain management, it affects all of our cases. Um, it's definitely a cost driver in our cases. And I can tell you that uh, speaking from the carrier employer perspective, we feel like pain management is like this runaway train. Uh, often, I mean, you, we've talked I about this. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. how the pain manager sometimes just wants to offer something more to their patient, right? Or less. More or less, okay. <laughs> 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 Usually they're, they're offering more and more and it just seems like they're on this train, particularly the opiate train, and then they never get off of it. And what can we do to sort of control and stop that? Um, my clients, uh, they are every single industry, uh, and we see this affecting a lot of our cases, particularly the low back cases, where there's just inchoate, sort of vague uh, pain that just goes on for a long time. So, uh, hmm. I'm being advised that the slides were not showing. Let's try it again. Um, I'm hoping that you can see the slides now. 
All right, we have the slides, great. All right, let me just repeat a little bit of that. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Yanow. Her contact information is on your screen now. Thanks for whoever typed in that question to us, letting us know that, super. Um, so your information is now up, people can see it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about second opinions because it's one of the things that a lot of my clients look to as a way to try to control costs or get the patient the correct care. Um, so you're certainly doing second opinion consultations. Yes. And what kind of cases are you seeing in those second opinion consultations? It's typically medication management. Um, sometimes we get them a little bit sooner when they're still sort of undergoing more active treatment. But unfortunately, a lot of the, you know, by the time that they get to see me, they're already kind of in a rut. And they've been getting medications, same ones, you know, for months, even years. And then whatever the impetus is, you know, somebody says, oh, let's get a second opinion. But it's, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times it's sort of that train has already, you know, been traveling for a while. Right. So you're sort of jumping into a case after the, the treatment's been on course for a long time. And I remember one thing that you said uh, when I heard you speak was that at some point the medications aren't actually, there is no physiological effect from the medication. It's mainly, or it's a lot of it's psychological. That's predominantly right. psychological. And is there a specific time that that happens or? So actually at a month is when we really start to see people becoming used to the medication. Mm -hmm. And people bec can become psychologically dependent on it at any point. Um, you have to look at it in terms of what you're treating. So if somebody just had major back surgery, you're expecting they're going to need medications for, you know, two or three months, and that's appropriate. After that point, if you're not very aggressive about weaning them off, they're going to develop more of a psychological dependence on them, but also now a physical dependence on them. So it's obviously much harder, you know, to get these patients on more appropriate levels or no level of medication the longer you, you know, let it go. Sure. So in your practice, it's primarily patients that you're treating from beginning to end. Is that fair? Yes, correct. And when you're asked to brought in for a second consultation or a second opinion, like when's the right time to come to you for that group of patients? In other words, they're treating with a pain manager right now, a risk manager, an adjuster, has got this case trundling along, and it maybe it's they felt like it's stalled out or they're not reaching any sort of palliative uh, improvement is nothing's happening, they're not getting any better. When's the right time, really, for us to be thinking about that second opinion consultation? So it depends, you know, again, sort of where the case is going. So if it's a patient who's going for surgery, um, you know, and we may be talking about this more, you know, in the opioid part of the talk, but there's a lot of data that's come out over the last five to seven years specifically looking at surgical outcomes as related to medication usage. Mm -hmm. And it's even more prevalent in the workers' comp population. But even in the commercial population, patients who have surgery on high doses of medications have a worse outcome if you remove every other variable. If you take away smoking, job satisfaction, everything else that we typically look to for predictors of who's going to do well from surgery, if you remove all of those and you just look at opioids, patients on higher doses for a longer period of time do worse. The return to work rate is significantly lower, again, just using opioids as a standalone variable. And obviously, the cost is significantly higher, right? So on average, somebody who goes into surgery on higher dose opioids, the cost of their claim is going to be about $70,000 more 
just because of the medication part of it. So this, if it's a surgical patient, having a second opinion even before that surgery in an effort to perhaps you know, sort of wean them off their medication or wean them down to lower doses preoperatively um, may be very helpful just in the overall duration and cost of the claim and obviously the patient's outcome. If it's somebody who's not really under active treatment anymore, so there isn't another surgery that's being proposed, the injections have been done, there isn't any curative, you know, for lack of a better word, treatment, then the second opinion really should be thought of as soon as the treatment becomes stagnant. Right? Okay. So they've been on these same medicines for three or four months. There's no, we can't infer from the notes where this is going. There's no real plan. There's no weaning schedule. You know, and of course, if the doctor, you know, if you reach out to the physician and they're, you know, amenable to, you know, sort of, you know, talking about that, great. If not, or if it's just nothing's changing, then that would be the time. Because once, you know, you know as well as I do, once these patients are on these medications for two years, you know, they're married to them. Right, you're not getting These off. medications is a lot more challenging. Sure. So I just heard three or four months stagnant. That's the time we should be starting to think. Maybe I need to yeah, either communicate with the treating right, physician right. or get that second opinion. Right, because it, you know, if if the treatment's not changing and there's no sort of plan, you know, so perhaps at that point somebody else needs to step in and say, okay, you know, I would suggest doing you know A, B, or C. Sure. Just to move it along one way or the other. What goes into a second opinion consultation? I'm imagining. What I've seen is usually a cover letter from an adjuster or risk manager saying, hi, could you take a look at this patient? Sometimes that's all they tell you, right? It's like not a lot of information. Um, are you always provided with the medical records? How much of your intake do you do with the patient? Um, and do you ever reach out to the, treat the prior treating physician to get sort of their input, or is that maybe not as useful? I typically don't reach out to the prior treating physician. On occasion, if you know, if I know that the patient saw a surgeon and I'm not able to get those notes, I may reach out and just say, you know, sort of what you know, sort of happened during your office visit. But typically, I don't reach out to, to the providers. Um, my office does a very good job of getting medical records before I see somebody. So if I have a second opinion scheduled, that appointment's not going to happen if we have, like, a cover letter or nothing else. You know, mm -hmm. of course, it's a waste of the patient's time, it's a waste of my time, and I'm not going to be able to really, obviously, give a good opinion if I don't have those records. So I fortunately don't you know, really have that, that issue. Um, and the people who refer to my office, I think are you know, very good about getting records. Um, the ones that are important to get, you know, the cover letter is actually hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they've, they've been evolving over the last few years. They're becoming a lot more thorough. Good. Um, with typically you know, a description of the original injury, what parts are compensable, which is believe it or not, still important because by the time I see them, they have like total body pain. You know, sure, it could be anything. Time. Right. Um, then, you know, just sort of an overview of the treatment they've had. You know, saw this doctor on May 5th, had an injection, had PT, saw the surgeon. Just like a very general outline so that I can match that up with the medical records, make sure I'm not missing anything. And then the really important part is, you know, what is specifically being asked of me? Mm -hmm. um, to narrow the scope of the appointment, sure. Because if it's left too open-ended, you could be commenting on every condition out things there. Things that you know nobody wants to hear from me about. So right. you know, narrowing the scope is really important. If they have specific questions about medications, 
you know, that's important just so that I really know what to focus on. So if it's specifically a medication question, then I know even during the course of the conversation with the patient, I'm not going to be asking so much, you know, how'd you do from that shot? How'd you do from this procedure? It's really, you know, what medicines have you on? Have they been effective? Has your function improved? You know, you tailor the, you know, inter interview with the patient based on what they're asking of, of you. Is there any opportunity to do any like credibility testing? Like I know orthopedic physicians will do like Waddell testing or some types of, I, I don't know if there's anything like that in your realm where it's we can kind of feel out. It's the same, okay. really. I mean, we use those same tests, right? You know, but unfortunately it's, it's purely subjective. I mean, it's right? pain. So they could have, yeah, they right. could be sitting there looking completely comfortable. Say I have 10 out of 10 pain. Probably don't. But right. Yeah. That's I mean, what I guess you got to bring a healthy sense of skepticism, but it also is—it's relatively germane to the patient. I mean, one person's one out of ten pain is not the same as. But, you know, the way I try to look at it, honestly, is almost regardless of their pain level or what they're, you know, sort of voicing as their pain level. You know, there's only so many things that I can offer, right? Pain management has become this sort of like endless black whole of treatment, um, but it, it shouldn't be, right? There's very specific treatments that we have to offer, and based on a patient's symptoms and their imaging and their exam, okay, I think you're a candidate for A and B, not the other ones. You know, it really should be quite limited. Right. So if they say they have 5 out of 10 pain or 10 out of 10 pain, if I think there's treatment to offer, I'll offer. If not, no, sure. I'm sorry, I wish I could help you. There isn't anything else to do. Yeah. So I mean, I feel like when I look at medical records, it's always 10 out of 10 pain, and maybe it drops down sometimes to 8 out of 10, but of people... With medication, it gets down to a 9 out of 10. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I just it's it's a weird indicator, and I mean, there's only... If they're sitting there comfortably in your office, but they're subjectively reporting these high incidents of pain, um, I, and there is no, right, there's no objective truer test that we could look to. There isn't for chronic pain. You know, acutely, you know, if you broke your ankle, you know, your heart rate's going to be elevated. There will be certain physiological signs. Those, you know, go away um, in chronic pain. So there isn't that we, anything that we can actually do to test somebody's actual pain, pain level. level. It's 100% subjective. Sure. And I feel like we've talked a lot or a little bit so far about pain. And I'm thinking of it in the traumatic injury sense. But you also treat a lot of RSD patients. I do, yes. Right. And what are particularly the challenges there? And do you do a lot of second opinion consultations for them as well. I get a lot of second opinion consults, um, and those are twofold. Those are either to question the diagnosis, you know, if somebody had surgery and they're not getting better and the surgeon is concerned, you know, everything looks good, I'm not sure what's happening, perhaps it's RSD, so I get those second opinions. Um, but then also the ones that are have been diagnosed and are in treatment, um, and something is being proposed, like ketamine infusions or something that's considered right now to be sort of outside the standard of care, then I will get those second opinions as well. Yeah, I have one case where the uh, petitioner is traveling to Philadelphia to get the ketamine injections. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess that's the place where they're doing them that's or they're considered they standard. Go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel like RSD in particular, that's a tough sort of uh, diagnosis to deal with. Right, because I was taught like you know, there's certain things you're going to see coldness in the extremity, you see a loss of hair, right? There's you know there's going to be some atrophy maybe, and 
changes, discoloration of the nails, kind of things. And so these objective things, but someone could have that and really demonstrate maybe even none of those um, physical manifestations. If they Is that demonstrate right? none of them, then they actually nowadays don't get the diagnosis. Okay, great. Therapy. So we've sort of modified the diagnostic criteria. So they to have to show. exclude okay. people who just have the symptoms, but none of the physical exam findings. So a lot of patients who were diagnosed with CRPS in the 90s, technically, now today wouldn't make the diagnosis. Meet criteria. Interesting. Obviously, there's no once you put that diagnosis down, I mean, there's no taking it away. That's it for it life. It will yeah. never go away. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, you know these patients who you know have had that diagnosis for years and years, and of course you're not going to say, oh, we don't have it anymore. Our criteria changed, but. You know, for the newer patients who we're seeing now, you know, our criteria are a lot more specific and a lot more sensitive. So we're doing a much better job of diagnosing people correctly. Is there any treatment for CRPS or RSD? There is, absolutely. Um, early on, so if we're fortunate enough to catch these patients early, um, we actually give them high-dose steroids. Um, but this is like the very early. That's what period. I'm on right now for my uh, head cold. I'm on a medrol dose pack right now. Whatever. So your that. RSD should be. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm yeah, in great shape. Clear it up. <laughs> um, then we really want them to move the affected limb. So PT and OT very very important in the beginning. Um, if they're not really progressing, we do the sympathetic blocks. So like the stellate ganglion blocks for the hand, lumbar sympathetic blocks for the lower extremity. The push has been, you know, if people are really not doing well, if their symptoms are progressing, if they're getting um, a lot of vascular involvement, their hand is getting very cold, or if they're getting contractures. Um, we do spinal cord stim now a lot earlier than we used to. Um, and there's a lot sort of outside the scope of that, outside the scope of this today probably, but there's a lot of you know new FDA approved stims specifically for CRPS. Good. That's very different than what we were using before, which is a lot more effective for these hmm. patients. But Unfortunately, even under the best of circumstances, a lot of them, you know, sort of have a suboptimal, you know, response to treatment. I guess maybe because I'm always in the workers' comp context, I never see anyone get better from RSD or CPRS <laughs> or more functional. Um, I mean, my, my observation is once you've been separated from the workforce for some period of time, of it's unlikely they're coming back. And, um, you know, that's one of the frustrations with, with these types of conditions, particularly ones where you can't see it. It's just this is how I'm experiencing it, um, you know, from the, from our perspective. Um, all right, well, let's go on to our next topic, which is IMEs. This okay. is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and you do perform IMEs. I do. Okay. And I know it's not a huge part of your practice. Most of the time you're, ton, you're seeing patients. Right. Um, so when you're asked to do IMEs, my thing is don't send someone for pain management IME uh, or any IME unless there's really enough data for the doctor to look at um, and it's been put together for them. Uh, nothing frustrates me more than when you're sent eight inches of physical therapy notes, which I don't, I mean, I flip through physical therapy notes really fast because I, I know what they're going to say, essentially. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, but, you know, when you, when you just say, here's a bunch of stuff, figure it out, um, you know, my, my my thing is with this particular IME is like let's give a good cover letter, a good summary of Absolutely. what we're looking for, and then like what we're asking you to actually tell us. You know, and so right. often it's you know is this medically necessary, or have we reached MMI, or we have we are we exhausted every curative sort of uh, potential that we have there. Um, tell me about some of your frustrations with doing IMEs. I know they're a big, they take a lot of time. 
It take a lot of time. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of times who's get, whoever is scheduling an appointment wants to err on the side of making sure we have all of the information, which mm -hmm. a lot of times translates into too many things. Too yeah. much. Yeah. Um, you know, especially with these older claims, you know, somebody was hurt 10 years ago. You know, again, the physical therapy notes from right after the injury are not, not that they're not important, of course they are, but it's not going to change what my opinion is now 10 years later, mm -hmm. right? So just limiting the medical records to what's sort of applicable. Mm -hmm. The early medical records from the occupational med facility or wherever they went is actually really helpful, um, you know, mechanism of injury, because of course, as these, you know, story like snowballs, right? Oh yeah, right when foot's connected to the knee, connected to the hip, later, and eventually you know, it's your whole body. Very, very different. Um, and from a treatment standpoint, that's important. Right, if somebody hurt their ankle and they had ankle pain for five years and now we have all this back pain, you know, we're not gonna we know why they have back pain, it's because they've been lifting. Right? Sure. We're not gonna go looking for the source of their back pain and to focus on treating the ankle. So the initial, you know, records of the injury are important. Um, those initial provider notes and like early treatment. Um, imaging is really helpful. Um, we always get the reports. Um, for, for me anyway, for spine, it's really nice to be able to actually see the MRIs if there's any way to get the actual discs. Mm -hmm. um, personally, if it's a knee, like I can pretend to look at it. I'm not really going to, you know, ever miss, you know, get something the radiologist missed on a knee MRI. Um, but the imaging is really important. Um, the most recent treatment notes, because a lot of times I feel like anyway, what triggers an IME is now something new is being put proposed out there, or right? yeah, added. So they've in. been on these same meds for five years. Now all of a sudden, there's a request for a stimulator. You know, so they go, oh, hold on, I mean, so those most recent notes are very important because a lot of times you that's know, the trigger. That's right. why we're here. And then a lot of times the notes are actually missing, sort of the recent provider notes. Hmm. So the patient comes in and I say, <coughs> do you have any idea why you're here? And they say, oh yeah, they want to put that thing in my back thing in your, you know, and right. that's not actually part of the notes. It'd be useful to know um, you're, you know, so being it's really, asked to do that. you know, like the very beginning and the very, you know, the more recent ones, you know, the provider notes in the middle are important as well, but it's really, these sort are of the bookends, you know, that we really need to see. And again, the cover letter, right? What exactly would you like me to address? What question is really being asked? Is it just, is this person at IME, or is it a question related specifically to a proposed treatment? Now, you've told me, too, that in addition to the medical records mm -hmm. and your physical exam, you'll also consider other things that are sent to you. And we specifically talked about surveillance. Oh, yeah. And I know you, you say, hey, it can be useful sometimes. Uh, sometimes, I, and, and I get it. Uh, hey, Greg, you got them going to the bank. That's an activity of daily living. Like, they had to do it, right? Um, how do you so feel about that? The social media um, surveillance that we're getting more recently is is more helpful mm -hmm. um, because you know people like to brag on Facebook about mm -hmm. how I went rock climbing, I did whatever. Um, that's obviously you know much much more important. A lot of times, you know, the surveillance we see, you know, you know they're getting somebody coming out of their house doing kind of like routine errands. Right. So even if somebody said, you know, my back hurts so much, I can't walk more than five minutes, you know, they have to go to the grocery store, right? People have to do their sort of day-to-day -day activities. So I would never deny somebody treatment based on video of them just doing their sort of day-to-day -day things. Sure. 
um, obviously if they're out there jogging, you know, if they're doing something that's clearly Exceeding, in excess of yeah. what they verbalized they were able to do, that's a different story. But the social media surveillance, at least, you know, for me, has been a lot more telling than just the, the video surveillance. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't tell you the crazy things that we've seen on surveillance. And sure. so often I get um, Why don't you sent send me those? No, I will. They're, they're funny. Going to the bank. <laughs> I get the most, I mean, you know, we joke around here about the useless surveillance because, and I don't mean to impugn any surveillance vendors, but it's so much of, yeah, I got him getting in the car. And what does every uh, petitioner do? They, they get in the car, they drop the kids off at school, they go to the corner market, they buy cigarettes, they go home, they buy beer, they go home, and, and that, that's their day. You know, that, that's it. And the surveillance agent thinks, oh, I got, I got him. And meanwhile, it's not as, um, you know, important, or it's, it doesn't really show them really acting well beyond what they're telling their treating physician they can or cannot do. And so, from our perspective, it's not super useful most of the time. And they all say too, you know, I have good days and bad days. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Or I took my meds that day. Right. So whenever you see somebody, you know, doing perhaps a little more physical physical activity than you would expect, they say. I was having a good day. I slept well that night. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of times there's they get good it's coaching. hard to, you know, again, really change the course of treatment based on that unless you really see something egregious. Right. All right. Uh, last topic I want to ask you questions about is opiates. And this is the big one right now. Um, yeah. Every single, everybody's woken up to it. Every attorney general is suing some opiate manufacturer. Every week there's an article in the Law Journal about some doctor who's been written up. In fact, there's a doctor out in Warren, um, uh, Kenneth's son or something, or just $60 million worth of overprescribing uh, fentanyl and just crazy stuff that's going on out there. I mean, this is the hot topic nationally, not just in New Jersey. Sure. And you're seeing it every day, I'm imagining, in your practice. Yes. Yeah. I try, you know, like a lot of pain doctors nowadays, try to kind of steer away from the medication management, mm -hmm. focus more just on the interventional part of it. And so if there's an injection or a procedure I can do to help you, great. If not, you know, again, I'm sorry, there isn't anything to do. Um, starting people on opiates is not really part of my practice. I do have some that I either inherited or ones that I agreed to see to try to to wean. Um, some that I've weaned significantly and now are on, you know, a Percocet a day or something, you know, sort of a lot more manageable. But it's not a huge, I try not to make it a huge part of my practice. Okay, could you share with me a story of a successful weaning? And the reason I'm asking you that is because we, we are fighting all the time with judges to try to force them to implement a weaning program. Um, you know, uh, generally speaking, the courts don't want to get involved with that level of sure. medication management because right. they're scared, right? This person could go off the deep end and jump off a bridge when you take away their medication. So there's a lot of, I think, bias or fear about fiddle-faddling with that. In my practice, I have not seen wonderful results from weaning, meaning we spend a lot of time and effort and blood and treasure on it. Right. And then does it always work or does the patient comply? With, with that process, or uh, you know, those are sort of the things I'm seeing. So I'd love to hear right. about so successful weaning. I'm, you know, again, I try not to take these patients on. I'm not trying to like, advertise myself to you know, send all these patients. Um, but it's, and I don't know how to say this without kind of sounding, you know, sort of like a jerk. But 
you know, it's it's not that hard, right? So if you have somebody who's getting 120 Percocet a month and you give them 110, they're going to have 110, right? So typically what I do, you know, first, you know, you talk to them, you get sort of their response to the medication. These CDC guidelines that were published last March were very clear on us looking at functional improvement as a marker for, you know, appropriate medication management, right? So there's been a lot of studies published on the pain score and how effective these medications are for pain, which by the way, absolute best case scenario across the board outside of the cancer population is 20 to 30%. So the best response that we're going to see when we ask somebody about their pain score with and without medication is 30%. And they never say 30%, right? They say right. it goes from a 10 to an 8 or a 10 to an 8 and a half. Nobody says, oh, yeah, I'm 80% better. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't happen. Um, and it shouldn't because physiologically that's, it's not realistic. So the CDC said, okay, none of these people are really getting phenomenal result pain-wise, so let's look at function, which should be more important, right? This should right. be the better marker. If you still have 7 out of 10 pain, but you're able to get up and go to, go to work, get up and like, do your normal activities, then you know, perhaps you know, we'll sort of call that a success. So you know, first, when you have a patient come in who's you know, on their medication, they're very attached to them, you know, what you need to tease out initially is what are they doing all day? You know, mm -hmm. Functionally, are these medications helping? And you have to get this information in the beginning because then if you ask them at the end, when you tell them you're going to start weaning them, now all of a sudden the story changes, right? Like, well, I can't do anything without them. So initially you sort of get like what their functional status is, right? What are they doing during the day? If they're not really leaving the house, if they're kind of on the sofa all day, you know, because they're in so much pain, really medical necessity has not been met, right? It's not considered to be appropriate management. Um, if it's not, if these medications aren't resulting in a noticeable, you know, improvement in function. So once you kind of, you know, sort of get the background, you, know, you have the conversation with them that, you know, these medications are no longer considered, you know, sort of standard of care for your condition. Um, and they always think you're coming after their doctor, right, which is never, you know, the case. You say, look, years ago, you know, when you had this injury, this was Accepted. Care. Sure. This is how this is what we did for everybody, um, but you know we've learned as a pain community over the years. Just like you know treatments for certain cancers change. You know we learn more, and the treatment changes. Right. So we've learned more now. We sort of know that this isn't appropriate. So we're going to start cutting you back really slowly, um, and they're never happy about it, right? But if medically your body actually doesn't notice like a 10 to 20% decrease in medication. If I gave you placebo pills and told you it was the same, you would have no idea. Your body's not able to detect that degree of change. So, you know. So that's that 10% weaning yeah. sort of so you timeline. Can, you know, there's all these formulas for it, but it's really just give them a little bit less each month. If they have less medication, they're going to take less medication, mm. right? It's, so you're looking it at a month, month, month long sort of scale. Yeah, like month to month. You know, it's not, you know, they're, they're not there to have a debate with me about it, right? Like, I understand, you know, as a patient, you may not want to come off it. I don't feel it's appropriate, so I'm going to give you less. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this, you know, kind of lay it out, you know, this is what's happening, but it's going to be a very small decrease. You're, you know, you're not going to withdraw. You're going to have zero withdrawal symptoms. 
physiologically impossible for you to withdraw from this decrease. Like, you know, hammer you that say home. that out loud so because that they Because a lot of them it. have, you know, gone through periods where they've run out of meds or something wasn't authorized, and they've gone through withdrawal, which can be really traumatic. So you really want to make sure they understand you're not trying to rip their medicine away. You're, you know, not going to do it in a way that they have any withdrawal symptoms. Um, and a lot of times as they take less, like they actually become, they're not proud of themselves, that isn't necessarily the right way to say it, but they're pleasantly surprised that they do actually do okay, right? Because they've sort of gotten it stuck in their head that they need this 120 a month, otherwise they're not going to make it. Right. Like, look, you've had 110 less. Yeah, it must this be empowering great. to feel right. like I'm, I'm getting past Let's, this. you know, cut you down a little bit more. Sure. This is fantastic. You know, and you have to be supportive of it and not like, you know, 10 more months of this. You know, you have to, you know, sort of show them that you're pleased, you know, after all these years. This is, it is a really hard thing to do, and you kind of have to give them credit for, for doing it, even if it's not really something that they're happy it's about. It's not voluntary, but yeah, sure. Like, Look, you've been on this hey, for anyway. 10 years, yeah. and we're weaning you. Like, this is amazing. This is really hard to do. You know, and it's, I think, so it's a lot of so them don't necessarily want to be kind of on the meds all the time. It's very time-consuming. Right. They're always at the drugstore. People, you know, the pharmacists look at them, their friends and family, like, I all need pain medicines. You know, there's some stigma obviously attached to it. And there's a lot of people who I think would like to not be on them. They're just very apprehensive about the process they would need to go through to get off of them. Sure, sure. But, you know, if you give them less, they'll take less. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like tough love, but it has to be done at some point. Um, you know, we've had a conversation, and you said that sometimes uh, pain managers want to offer something to the to the patient, right? right? And they don't want to take something away, and there's something to that as well. Right. It's a little bit easier if you come in, you know, as a second opinion doctor or an IME doctor, and you don't have an established relationship, right? Like, I've only known you for 10 minutes. I'm not that invested. Like, I don't... Like, I haven't you haven't heard the whole life story. Right. I haven't, like, watched, you know, your kids, you, you know. So it's a lot easier to come in and say, you know, we need to do something about this than when it's you actually doing it. And I've been guilty of this too, of course. You know, these patients that you really like and you feel like they're doing well and you just kind of get stuck in a rut. Sure. Like, oh, I'll give you It's called sympathy. It's actually a good thing to have yeah, some sympathy. And it's, you know, and then, you know, my patient will go for an IME and I'll get this thing back. Like, oh, you're, you're over-medicating. And I'm like, mm. I totally am. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, but it's hard to see sometimes. And, you know, as a physician, you know, you want to help these people. You know, I think sure. sometimes... You know, not for any, you know, reason other than the patient tells you it's helping and you want to feel like you're doing something, you kind of continue to write for things that if you kind of took a step back and really thought about it, you're like, this probably isn't doing all that much. Right. You yeah. know, but we've, you know, I think mean, all physicians sometimes fall into that, you know, sort of trap of just wanting to feel like we're helping a patient who doesn't really have, you know, much a lot of treatment yeah, options. No other optimistic hope. Yeah. Right. All right, well, uh, let me come over here and see if we have any questions uh, from our, our lovely wit, uh, listeners. All right, so Raymond uh, asked the question, are, uh, how valid are pain scores? So they actually don't have any inherent validity. What they're used for is to compare um, a patient's response to treatment over time. So if somebody is a 10 out of 10, and you give them medicine and they're a 5 out of 10, you're really only looking at that as, okay, this medication is helping them. That 10 out of 10 honestly doesn't really mean much mm -hmm. because it could be your 1 out of 10. Right. Right. And some people, 
Well, ask a marathon runner how they feel the next day, and they're not going to say 10 out of 10. You know what I mean? Right. People come to this, I feel like, with such subjective thresholds. And then on top of that, I mean, I feel like when you're in the litigation context, there's somebody course. whispering in their ear saying, it's always 10 out of 10, you know, and... Right, and you and I have spoken about this before, too, and sometimes I think, you know, it's not that the patient is trying to, you know, purposely deceive me as a physician. Sometimes I think they're, you know, desperate for treatment. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, if I say 10 out of 10, maybe they'll offer me something that they wouldn't offer me if I said 5 out of 10. Right. But the numbers themselves, especially in a chronic pain setting, um, in and of themselves don't really, you know, sort of have much validity. Sure. It's really used for, you know, sort of um, response to treatment. All right. Uh, ready for another one? Yeah, sure. Deidre asked the question, have you personally seen the replacement of opiates with marijuana? Uh, if so, how would you describe the difference between the two? And I guess that would be in terms of outcomes. Right. So I am not, I don't prescribe it. Um, there is a physician who used to rent space in my old office who did. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with him about it. These are not comp patients, obviously. These are typically commercially insured. Um, but he has actually had success with <laughs> getting people off of the opioids. Um, but you know, but it's are you you're not really getting them off of some. It's replacement, sure. right? So, sort of replacing one you know kind of crutch with another. The literature on medical marijuana is fairly supportive for purely neuropathic pain conditions, um, which is why in New Jersey it's approved for the diagnoses it's approved for. Right? It's helpful for people with multiple sclerosis, people with spinal cord injury, true nerve pain. Um, it, it has shown to be helpful. Part of the reason is that opiates are actually not helpful for nerve pain. So the reason we have all these patients with failed back on huge doses of medication is because nerve pain doesn't really respond to opioids. So these people who are on huge doses of narcotics actually do better with marijuana because it's more appropriate for the type of pain that they have. Again, I personally you know, haven't really seen much of it. People ask me for it daily, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I haven't really had any personal experience with, you know, sort of swapping out one for the other. Okay. Um, that was Deidre's question. Uh, Jim asks, what is your opinion on interdisciplinary pain management programs? Have you seen any success? So in what, con- so for weaning, so if somebody is on very high doses of medication, um, I do think they'd be better for, you know, to wean them off in an interdisciplinary program if they need like, psychological support as well. Um, I very rarely have referred somebody to one just because you know, if they're, they're on that much medication and it's typically not somebody I would be seeing in my office. You know, if they have an intrathecal pump, if, you know, it's sort of beyond my scope. Um, I think we have to be a little bit wary of I don't want to say making too big a deal out of it, but you know, if somebody's in pain and they're on medication and we're trying to get them off, you know, I, I take it. I'm sort of um, a little bit abrupt about it. You know, I'm like, look, we're going to lower it. This is what we're doing. You're going to do fine, and just I, I try not to make it seem like something they're going to need multiple specialists to treat. Sure. Because I think it sort of reinforces in their head that this is really going to be a battle. This is going to be very difficult. So I think it's, you know, if somebody has substance, you know, prior substance abuse issues, 
if somebody's on very high doses of medication, I do think that kind of program is helpful. But you know, for the run-of-the-mill patient that I see who's maybe taking five or six Percocet a day they shouldn't be taking, I would use that sort of as a plan B if we weren't able to make progress with them, you know, just sort of in the outpatient sole provider setting. Okay. All right, I'm scrolling through the rest of the questions here. A couple sort of duplicative questions about uh, pain scores, because I feel like that must be something that people might have a lot of questions about. Um, so I feel like we've we've looked at that. Um, all right. If you have any other questions, I'm going to send everyone who's attending the webinar today and everybody on our list uh, Dr. Yanel's uh, contact information. If that's okay, yeah, so you can, can send her your patients yeah. or you can send her your questions. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, next month, we're going to be here. Uh, we're going to be talking about evaluating cases for exposure in New Jersey. So I hope everybody joins us on the fourth Friday of next month. Hi, thank, thank you so you. much for being here. I appreciate thanks it. A lot. Thank